Welcome to Tennessee Court Talk. I'm your host, Barbara Peck. Today we are talking about General Sessions Courts. This podcast is intended for the general public. My first guest is Judge Lee Bassart from Marshall County. She became a General Sessions Judge in 2011. My second guest is Judge Linda Jones, a General Sessions Judge in Davidson County. She was first elected to the bench in 2014. My third guest is Judge Alex McVeigh, a General Sessions Judge in Hamilton County. He has been on the bench since 2017. And my fourth guest is Judge Key Bryant-McCormick from Sumner County. She is our newest judge and was appointed to the bench in September of 2022. Welcome to everybody. Thanks Thank for you. having us. Glad to be here. So when I was researching for this podcast on General Sessions Courts, I came up with lots of like interesting little descriptions like the people's court and the court of first resort. So I'll start with you, Judge Bassart. What do you think of, describe General Sessions Courts for me. What is a General Sessions Court? Oh, well, you know, it depends on who you ask. Uh, I remember once I'm, I was at a conference and uh, at the time, uh, Chief Justice Wade on the Tennessee Supreme Court said, thank you for what you do. And I laughed out loud because I'm on, you're on the Supreme Court and I'm a General Sessions judge. And I thought it was really um, interesting that he would thank me. And I, I literally laughed at his face. And um, he said, um, no, what you do is so important because sometimes you're the only encounter that people will ever have with our justice system. And if you don't represent us well, people lose faith in it. And and it really, I think back to that a lot of, you know, some people may say that um, trial courts and appellate courts and Supreme Courts are more important or more prestigious. But I think what we do in General Sessions Court is so important because we interact with the most of the general public. And that is the um, best billboard that we can offer for our profession um, is to do a good job in these courts. Judge McVeigh, how do you describe General Sessions Court? Certainly, I, I would echo what Judge Bassard just said. It, it, especially on the civil side, I do often refer to it as the People's Court. I, I describe it to some as uh, think of Tennessee's Judge Judy uh, Court. We <laughs> handle uh, small claims matters, but. But actually, what some folks might not realize is that actually Tennessee has the highest jurisdictional limit in our small claims court. So you can take a case on the civil side to General Sessions Court that is worth all the way up to $25,000. So in addition to obviously your car wrecks and uh, your personal injury cases, you will have some pretty large construction disputes and uh, other contract and tort. So uh, that's the civil side. On, on the criminal side, again, I think... Uh, the people's court is an apt term. Uh, we we deal with the vast uh, majority of the public who do interact with our criminal justice system. Uh, we handle mostly misdemeanors, but also handle uh, preliminary matters and felonies. So again, it's it's I like to say the ER of the court system, the high volume emergency room triage of our court system. Okay, so we've talked, we've set some terms already that I'll go ahead and define. So civil, when we talk about civil court, that's usually as I like is a basic description is two people who are having some sort of disagreement, but it's a one person versus another person. And it could be a tort, like uh, you pushed me and I got hurt and I've got a hospital bill. It could be some sort of property line question. Or is that chancery? Um, or it could, it is chancery. Yeah. Thank you, or it's chancery. <laughs> um, so it's one person against another person. And then criminal is where I think what most people think of as court, and that's gonna be the state. So the state is filing charges against Somebody. So let's first talk a little bit about civil docket. For, so Judge Jones, tell me about like a typical civil docket for you in Davidson County. So we have a lot of evictions, of course, being the largest metropolitan area in the state. And so during the pandemic, we just had a, a, a massive amount of activity going on. There were federal dollars coming to our metropolitan government. Then there were dollars coming from the state in order to try to keep people in their homes during evictions where landlords could get paid the rents. And so it's a pretty massive operation. It's not unusual. Like we're in conference this week, next week, the next civil doc will probably have about 600 cases on it because we have such a volume. I consider it the mass retail court because we are such a large populated area. And I think evictions is a really good example. One of those issues where people might get confused about evictions. You think it's like it's a crime not to pay your rent or you're some... But it's not. I mean, it's the it's your landlord versus the tenant. The state of Tennessee has nothing to do with this. There's no criminal charges being involved. This is a civil question between you and your landlord about what was due, when it was due, 
who met the terms of the lease. So it's really just a contract dispute and eviction. Yeah, absolutely. And we have mediators that are there to also assist if people don't have an attorney. We have legal aid on hand who's doing pro bono work for our tenants now. And um, we do hear contract disputes. We do hear car wrecks. We do hear small business disputes. And that's an interesting area that we get into because there's a lot of sole proprietors out there, people that aren't a big corporation, and they might just be Joe the roofer guy who's having a dispute with a client. So we hear cases like that as well. Um, Judge Brian McCormick, tell me about your typical civil docket in Sumner County. Um, very similar to what Judge Jones said, because we're kind of suburban of Nashville in terms of that. So we have a lot of landlord-tenant. I have seen a, a, a just an influx of this construction, uh, essentially construction disputes. I feel like I'm an expert in laying tile at this point. <laughs> 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 don't you don't want to hire me though, but I, because I've learned so much about construction issues from hearings um, that we've had, and because our jurisdictional limits are so high that people often bring the construction issues to general sessions. So I've had just a, a big volume lately of construction disputes. Of course, naturally, a lot of landlord tenant actions, but also some torts, like you said, um, some simple. Um, car accidents or slip and falls or things that uh, have a value within the range of our jurisdictional limits. I'll, I'll add one um, one thing I've learned is to never build your own swimming pool. That, that is that is one <laughs> lesson I have taken from probably about 20 swimming pool construction defect cases. Now we're also a court of equity and so we do have some rather broad unusual jurisdiction that a lot of people don't realize. So, um, for example, um, not only landlord-tenant leases, but car leases or rent-to-own furniture payment leases. We hear those types of cases as well. And, and we actually, um, not many cases like this come through. I've only heard one in the last eight years, but we have a right to do what's called arrest the airplane. And so if someone comes in and wants to take somebody's airplane, they can come and get an injunction from us. Something we did not know. That probably doesn't come up that often. So if I'm in if I'm in a Tennessee general session civil docket and what happens if my case sort of develops and I decide that it's gonna be more than twenty five thousand dollars worth of damage, what happens at that point? Typically at, at that point, um, there's a few things that can happen. One are that the parties could uh, ask that the case be transferred uh, to a different court. We as judges could uh, decide that that we don't have jurisdiction to hear a case. I, as, as much as I might want to hear the hundred thousand uh, dollar driveway dispute, um, I, I, if 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 it is not going to be uh, worth twenty five thousand dollars or below, then then I don't have the authority to hear that. So in those cases, I would send the case to what uh, we know as circuit court or chancery court, a, a higher uh, trial level court than us. And Judge Bussard, how many people in your case, what if you don't have an attorney? So how many, what percentage of people in your court and on your civil docket come in without being represented by an attorney? Most. Um, I would say 98% are pro se. And it, it's a wonderful thing. You get to educate folks on, all right, these are the rules and th this is how I want you to um, stand and this is how I want you to uh, conduct yourself. And so you really get to educate people every Every, every other Thursday, I take people to law school, and um, uh, you'd be amazed. They do a terrific job because they have such a command of the facts. They, it's their story. Um, they're, they're more prepared than a lawyer ever could be. So I'll throw this out to anybody. So what's your best advice for pro se litigants if I'm going to come before your court and you could give me a five-minute pep talk the day before, what would be your best advice? I, can, I would say, you know, be organized. Bring your receipts. Please bring your receipts. If you're asking the court to give you money damages, the receipts are so important. If you have photographic evidence, bring the photos to court because the court needs to see the evidence and see the proof. A lot of people want to tell you their side of story, and they're wonderful storytellers, but unless you can see the cold hard evidence, you can't necessarily make a ruling. And, and I'll add as well, I mean, a lot of folks don't realize that um, when you go to court and if, if you don't bring with you appropriate documentation, but also appropriate witnesses, a lot of time we, times we actually cannot consider certain evidence. So let's say you have so-and-so told me that the car was gonna cost $500 to fix. Well, unless that person is there in court to tell me directly 
that this is the amount, you know, it will cost 500 to fix this. I can't consider that. It's what we call hearsay. And so, again, I think it's important that a lot of folks know not only to bring their documentation, but to bring anybody uh, that's important uh, to, to your story uh, and also uh, any, we'll call them expert witness, that can kind of help us as judges understand, you know, things that are a little bit outside of everybody's uh, wheelhouse as, as far as our expertise. I would just like to echo what Judge McVeigh said. Oftentimes I hear so many times, well, my mama saw it. I can go get mama. Well, we need mama there. So if you know mom is a witness, make sure mom comes with you because there's not the opportunity to then say, okay, I want to stop the middle of the trial and go find a witness and bring them back. It doesn't happen that way. It's for us, because we are such a volume people's first resort um, and all of that many elements that General Sessions is, it's fast moving. So you've kind of got one shot. So you want to make sure it's the best, as well as if you could bring copies of things too, that would be even better. So be prepared, have copies, bring your witnesses, um, and then breathe. Realize that we're not just going to nitpick you for every little thing we understand. So just be calm and and present your information. I, I would say my advice to pro se litigants would be uh, what I think every good lawyer knows. Be nice to the clerk. When you walk in that courthouse, the most knowledgeable people are the staff. <laughs> it's not the judge. It's not the the lawyers that um, pop into that courthouse, um, you know, once a month. The staff's there day in and day out. And and if you have a question, don't be afraid to ask politely. But I, I would, before court, maybe try and go observe court and say, um, ask the clerk, hey, how, how will I know? Is my case going to get heard that day? Do I need to make sure my witnesses are here? Um, do I need to subpoena those? Can you help me with that? And if of course, the clerk is not in a position to offer legal advice, but they can say, here, I'll look at the docket for you. No, your case isn't going to be set for trial that day because we have 60 other cases. The The clerk can really give you good information to help you be well prepared. And, and Barbara, if I could just add one uh, last point. I mean, it, uh, General Sessions Court and, and being the people's court, the Judge Judy Court, where you get to go kind of make your own case, it, it's almost also a, a double-edged sword. On the one hand, we want there to be an avenue where there's a low-cost a way that folks can co- kind of make their, their case. At the same time, there are quite a few statistics concerning folks that are not represented by a, by a lawyer uh, that actually, you know, don't fare all that well in our court, particularly in the landlord-tenant space. Uh, the numbers of folks that are ultimately uh, evicted, uh, it, it's far less likely that you'll be evicted if you have a lawyer than if you don't. So I, I do think it's important that folks that if you're considering even coming to General Sessions Court, you do uh, in addition to your own research, you do you might want to reach out to an attorney beforehand. Uh, it, folks might also qualify for free legal assistance through legal aid. So I do think it's important that no matter how you know how great you are at, at commanding the facts of your case, uh, there are still some things that legal representation will certainly help. And so uh, you know I, I do encourage everybody that comes in this court. Have you talked to a lawyer? Have you considered a lawyer? And if they say no, then Great. I mean, they're 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 ready to go. Uh, but I do think it's something important to consider if you are contemplating taking a case to General Sessions Court. Right. And I'll add. I mean, there are a lot of legal resources in Tennessee. Um, if you qualify for them, there's legal aids in in all parts. All 95 counties have some sort of legal aid presence. There's free Tennessee legal answers. There's lots of lots of information out there if you just can. Um, get out a phone and Google free legal advice in Tennessee and you will get multiple resources. So we definitely encourage people to at least get some advice on whether they have a good case or what they should bring um, and, and get sort of organized is what I heard is from all of you the message. I think be organized when you if you're going to go to court yourself on a civil case, organized, bring copies, bring your receipts, bring the estimate for your car damage and then bring any witnesses um, with you, have them lined up. So what, let me switch gears a little bit here. What is mediation and how would you, how do you use mediation in your court? So we have the Nashville Conflict Resolution Center come to our court a couple of days a week and people that don't have lawyers can choose to mediate their case rather than litigate in front of the judge. 
And that takes, like, for example, next week's docket, which, which might have 600 civil cases. That might peel off, like, four or five cases. And those people can resolve their case that day, reach an agreement where there's a mediator who listens to both sides of the story. And there's buy-in because both parties are coming up with a joint consensus. And that's worked well for us because sometimes if everybody wants a hearing, I mean, 22 trials in one day can happen and your case might not get heard till 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon. In the meantime, you've missed a whole day of work. You've got to have somebody else pick up your kids after school if you've got someone who can pick them up. So it's sometimes it's hard to spend an entire day in court and we want to be mindful of that. So that's why we offer NCRC to do those services. One of the examples I always like to give litigants about mediation as a potential avenue to have their case resolved is I give this example probably weekly in court is I'll say, okay, let's say two of you are fighting over a lemon. And ultimately for the judge, based on sometimes volume and even just the way they present the information, I might just cut the lemon in half and plaintiff gets a half a lemon and the defendant gets the other half. And ultimately, both of you walk away. But what if you really needed the whole lemon? So both of you lost. Nobody won. Both of you lost. Both of you walked away with half a lemon and you can't do anything with it because you needed a whole lemon. But in mediation, often they'll get to the root of the issue and figure out that, no, you really needed the juice. You needed the juice of a whole lemon. And you really needed the zest. You needed the zest of a whole lemon. So the mediator will help you craft that on Monday at 8 8 a.m., you're going to squeeze all of the juice out of that lemon. And then at 12, you're going to transport that lemon to the defendant and they're going to then take all of the zest. Well, both of you had the opportunity to walk away and with what you needed, a whole lemon for your purpose, where for us, sometimes as judges, you know, we'll end up cutting the lemon in half because we can't get to the meat or the history or the issue of what it is you really need versus a mediator helping you come up with the options. And sometimes even the law isn't designed for us to be able to say you at eight and you're at noon, et cetera. You know, we're confined by the the constructs of the law. So mediation often is a good good avenue to help people resolve issues where often they can walk away with a win-win. So let's talk about criminal dockets a little bit. Um, so criminal court, again, this is you're having charges filed against you. Um, so talk about, Judge McVeigh, what kind of criminal cases you hear in, in, in general sessions court? Certainly. Uh, again, the, the same theme. It's the, the high volume uh, ER people's court. Um, we hear everything from uh, a traffic citation on an interstate uh, all the way up to a, a, you know, a homicide. Uh, we, we would hear the, the preliminary hearing on, on, on a homicide. So, so it is um, you, <laughs> safe to say that you, I, I do never, I never know what my day is going to look like when I step on that bench. It's a, a, a wide variety of, of issues we deal with. But, but again, primarily we are allowed to sentence and preside over. We have what's called jurisdiction over all misdemeanors. And a misdemeanor uh, is a case that uh, if, if you were convicted carries up to 11 months and 29 days in custody. Anything over that, a year and above, is what's uh, known as a felony uh, here in Tennessee, and there's various uh, degrees and, and classes. But but we deal primarily with misdemeanors. But in addition to the 100 uh, drug, DUI, uh, theft cases I might hear in a given day, we'll also have those handful of felonies that we are hearing um, right, right when a, a crime is committed. So uh, our days, uh, in addition to being... Um, you know, kind of a, a very high volume and a, a large docket, we can also have quite emotional courtrooms as well. Uh, we are the first stop often uh, for a family that might have just lost a loved one to a uh, horrific, uh, you know, crime. Uh, there in that courtroom that day, news cameras, uh, you know, victims, uh, witnesses, all, all there uh, to, to um, hear that preliminary case, uh, preliminary matter in front of us. And so it, it can be... Um, uh, you know, quite emotional, uh, quite quite a stressful uh, a court appearance, and, and again, every day is uh, something new, at least in our docket in Chattanooga. Right. So I I did go to law school, and I will admit, when I first came um, to Tennessee, I'm not a native Tennessean, um, and I first started taking this job, I was just baffled. I will say, when I saw, I think it w- it was a very high profile crime that was committed when I first started, and I was like 
we're in general sessions court right now. I am so entirely confused. Um, so let's talk about that a little more. So it's really every crime in Tennessee, no matter how horrific and how, unless it's a federal crime, but we'll say all the state crimes, all of the state crimes, no matter what the crime is, it starts in general sessions court. So sort of explain that process, what, what's going on initially before we, I mean, we're going to end up in state criminal court, but what, what's the role of General Sessions in like a, a murder case? So you're starting with a jail docket, basically. You're arrested, you go to jail, and you appear on the jail docket. And in Davidson County, you have a right to be in front of someone talking about your bail within 24 to 48 hours of being picked up. So at that point in time, you also have a right to know what you're being accused of and what you're being charged with. It might not be a homicide. It might be an aggravated robbery. And that gives an opportunity for you to get a lawyer right away and the state, if they're going to bring evidence against you, to start bringing forth some of that evidence. So you also have a right to a preliminary hearing. We hold our preliminary hearings within 15 days. And that's why all the felony serious cases start in General Sessions Court as well. And then what's going to be the next step? But, and you're going to get an initial arraignment here in General Sessions Court as well? And then Judge Jones uh, referred to a preliminary hearing. If at the preliminary hearing there's probable cause to proceed, the case is bound over to the grand jury. And then it would be uh, presented to the grand jury and arraigned in circuit court. And then move forward to circuit court. So really everybody, listen to this, attorneys too. <laughs> Everybody starts in General Sessions Court until we are bound over for, for, by the grand jury. Unless it's a direct presentment mm. to the grand jury. And I, I've seen a few more of those recently um, in sensitive cases where they involve maybe um, a local government issue. They they start it at a direct presentment. Um, and I, I've seen a few more of those recently. I usually see a lot of white-collar crimes that are typically... Um, and that's going to be like your upper level embezzlement. Those cases are often direct presentment cases as well, where the investigation element of it has taken quite a bit. They have enough evidence to go forward. And so they ultimately go through it for a direct presentment. But most cases definitely start in general sessions. And, and when we say direct presentment, we're, we're referring to kind of bypassing general sessions court, uh, but, but it is more rare. And um, and ultimately, if we find after that preliminary hearing that there's probable cause, we're, we're not we're not convicting a defendant. We're not holding a, a trial right there in that hearing. We're just trying to make sure there's enough evidence that we believe the case should proceed. Um, you know, really important, particularly if a defendant's going to remain in custody for possibly years till his, his trial or her trial might, might occur. It's really important to have another set of eyes in various stages of our criminal justice system. Um, if we decide there's enough evidence, we send the case on, bind it over to the grand jury. And again, the grand jury is what what listeners might uh, think of as you you know you often uh, think of a jury deciding a case at the end of a, of a trial, a, a petite jury. A, a grand jury is is again members of your community, your peers that are together deciding another set of eyes, deciding whether there's enough evidence on the front end. For a case to proceed to that jury trial, uh, so when we're, we're referring to those terms, that that that's what we mean. But but again, a vast majority of, of these do go through General Sessions Court, and, and and I view our court as kind of another check and balance on the system. Uh, that at various stages in Tennessee, there are uh, quite a few different eyes and different hearings and different rights that accused have uh, along the way, all the way to your trial. And then also, are you, are you signing a lot of um, search warrants at the at the general sessions level that is yes 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 a lot <laughs> shaking their heads yes um so a lot of search warrants even before we get to the point of arresting people your general sessions judges are very involved with weighing whether a search warrant should be signed yes definitely so some some jurisdictions are uh, lucky enough to also have judicial commissioners or magistrates that oftentimes have offices actually at at a particular uh, jail or, or workhouse or um, also at the courthouse, but uh, but others, particularly in more rural jurisdictions, it really is up to the general sessions judge to be that person uh, who is you know signing search warrants, who is setting bail, 
uh, and, and, you know, being very involved uh, even at that stage of the process. So what kind of criminal cases stay in general sessions court? So we've kind of talked about the ones that get bound over for the grand jury. What about the ones, the misdemeanors and felonies up to a certain level? Yeah, anything that's punishable by less than 11 months and 29 days in jail. So you're going to have an assault. You're going to have simple possession. You're going to have drug paraphernalia. You're going to have criminal trespass. Um, You're going to have DUI cases, multiple DUI cases, actually. So it can be second, third, that sort of thing. Um, Anything that is smaller in nature. Um, Domestic violence, though, however, is huge in nature, but it is also considered a misdemeanor. How do you process those types of cases, criminal cases? How are they different from a typical civil docket? I think you just have more witnesses. You've got more attorneys involved on the criminal side. You've got the sheriff involved. You've got a lot of moving pieces and parts. So I think the criminal dockets can be a little more intense and more people involved. The biggest part is you have the district attorney's office involved. And so that where in a civil case, you just might have two individuals suing each other. Of course, as you explained earlier, you have the state of Tennessee represented by the district attorney's office that's involved. So you know you have at least a lawyer on one side for most cases. Uh, Of course, sometimes we deal with pro se litigants in, in the criminal world as well, but oftentimes the district attorney's office is involved as well as the public defender's office is involved. So that also, I think, helps expedite cases as well. And, and, and I'll add, I mean, in Hamilton County, Chattanooga, the, the vast majority of our 60,000 criminal cases in any given year are handled by what we call plea agreement. Uh, so that that's, again, a little bit, it's it's almost like the, the mediated civil agreement, but, but ultimately uh, it's an agreement that is reached between the prosecutor, the district attorney, the state of Tennessee, and the defendant. Uh, either the defendant, if he's representing his or herself, which you really don't recommend in criminal court, uh, we can go into that. But, but, uh, or uh, that defendant's attorney, uh, it's an agreement that they reached, uh, and then they present it to us as judges, and we decide whether we accept or reject that plea agreement. Uh, and most plea agreements are, are, are accepted if, if they're reasonable, and 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 I think that um, you know, but but that that certainly is a difference. The vast majority of our are very. Uh, large dockets are handled uh, by plea agreement. And what wh- at what point am I? Do I have a right to an attorney in criminal court? When you're in jeopardy for losing your freedom, so any crime, you could request uh, an attorney to be appointed for you if you can't afford one. And where, as in civil court, I'd say 98% of my folks are pro se, which means representing themselves. It's very rare to represent yourself for me in criminal court because you have access to a court-appointed attorney. And so if you are indigent, uh, an attorney is appointed for you. Um, I also, I I don't know, I'm I'm one of the rural judges here. I'm in a smaller town. Um, And so I'll have sometimes murders and speeding offenses on the same docket. (laughs) And so, um, you know, if you're there for a traffic offense or something that is more or less minor, you, you may not get an attorney, but most of the time a, a court-appointed public defender or a, a private-appointed attorney is available to you. So if, if, there's the, if there's a possibility that the sentence will be jail time, then I have the right to an attorney. If it affects any constitutional right, so your freedom, your children. If, if you are there because I also have jurisdiction for juvenile court and I have to uh, appoint an attorney anytime it may mean that I'm taking someone's child from them because they have a constitutional right to parent. So the sentence we talked about 11 months and 29 days, 29 days. So you, you, you can, you can give a sentence up to 11 months, 29 days. You can also do fines. Um, but there also sometimes are alternative sentencing things like drug courts and special recovery courts. So I know judge McVeigh, you have one. So tell me a little bit about how you use, how you would use a drug court in general sessions. What is it and how do you use it? Certainly, uh, you know, in, in, in sentencing, um, you know, there, there are various, um, philosophies on, on why we sentence somebody a certain way. One is obviously to punish somebody. One might be, uh, to make somebody else whole. If, if somebody breaks your car, well, then I want the other person to, to repay, uh, you know, the, the damage to that car. Um, but, but one might also be to help rehabilitate a person so that they are not continuing to be in and out of our courts. Uh, a lot of these folks that we're talking about today in our courts have been in our courts hundreds of times. These are, these are repeat offenders. 
Uh, and, and the other thing we've kind of recognized with a lot of these individuals uh, are that uh, most, if not all of them, are suffering from some sort of substance use disorder or mental health issue or, or both. Um, and uh, what we began to see, I think, first was in 1989 in, in Miami, the first uh, drug recovery court was started to address the crack cocaine epidemic that was uh, gripping the Miami, but also the nation. Uh, and, and so since 89, we've had quite a bit of research across the country to about some of these what we call treatment courts or recovery courts. Uh, what if we attempted to use the court system uh, in a way to, to supervise, but also address some of these underlying issues, uh, mental health issues, substance use issues, to try to help change some of this criminal and addictive thinking and behavior address some of the root causes while providing the supervision that's needed, uh, help folks uh, get a, a higher education degree, keep a job, have case managers to work on different sorts of things, but also having treatment available to these to these folks. So um, the idea of drug courts and, and mental health courts and veterans courts, uh, DUI courts, um, we even have a family uh, drug uh, sex trafficking court uh, in, in Tennessee. Uh, the idea of, of, of these sorts of um, innovative, you know, treatment courts, heavy supervision, heavy treatment courts has has proven quite successful not only in Tennessee but across the country. So uh, there are, I believe, 82 um, uh, treatment courts in Tennessee. I think 50 drug courts, you know, nine mental health courts, uh, and 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 what these these courts all kind of operate under the same best practices, the same models. But but in a nutshell, it involves uh, heavy supervision, but also heavy substance use and mental health treatment uh, while they are progressing uh, through the probationary sentence. So if you hear someone you know has been sentenced and they're and they're going to recovery court, what would be your response to someone who's saying like that's really easy and they're like getting off? Oh, oh no, it no, 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 no. <laughs> That's the probably biggest erroneous statement ever. I, for me, I have mental health court. And for individuals to go, go through mental health court for me, or let me just take the average probationer. The average probation person pretty much meets with their probation officer once a month that on, on average. And I don't know if it's the same way for each county, but typically it's a, about once a month. So let's say you have a 11 months and 29 day sentence. Or are you in multiple 11 months and 29 day sentences because you have multiple offenses? So let's say you have, we'll just take one for easy math, 11, 29, that's pretty much 12 months. So you might meet your probation officer 12 times. For mental health court, they meet with me every week as well as with probation or do drug screenings twice a week in addition to that. So my average mental health court participant will have met with someone 12 times in one month. So the person who just had standard probation, they've met with the person 12 times in one month versus 12 times in a whole year. And usually those programs, I know for us, mental health court, usually they're in for greater than a year. So that program is extremely intense and far more difficult than just standard probation. Or, or, or just uh, sitting even in custody. Um, yes. A lot of these folks, you, you think there's not, um, you know, drugs and, and uh, in, in our, some of our, our prisons and workhouses, I, you, you know, you're, you're, you're wrong. I mean, some, so some of our individuals, I, I know some of my drug court participants, they actually would far prefer to spend a weekend sanction in, in custody as opposed to doing three days of community service on the side of the road. So again, it's just it's thinking outside the box, but but it certainly is 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 not an easy program. And I make sure everyone knows that up front. I mean, it is it is one of the most difficult things that this particular defendant will ever do, uh, and it should be that way. I mean, these are folks. You know, we're not talking about somebody that can just go to a 28-day stint in inpatient and be fine. I mean, these are people that are very, very high risk of reoffending and a high need of treatment. So these are, I don't like to say the worst of the worst, but these are our repeat offenders. These are folks that nothing else has worked. And if we put them in custody, they're going to get out and they're going to be right back there terrorizing our streets and being right back in our court. So we have to try something else. And so what drug court and mental health court uh, does, I mean, we, in addition to meeting with their case manager that many times a week, I mean, they're actually... In Chattanooga, at least, in four different days of intense outpatient treatment, we have in-house treatment. I mean, they're meeting in groups four or five days a week early on in the program. I mean, it is they're they're employed within two weeks. They have to be employed within two weeks of getting out of custody. I mean, these are people that haven't held jobs in, in years, you know. And so, again, it's a very strenuous. But in the end, if you graduate from one of these programs, your chance 
of remaining successful, being tax-paying, productive members of society is quite high, and your chance to be back in the system goes down exponentially. Great. Um, so the last thing topic I wanted to touch on was domestic violence cases because they are a little bit of a mix between criminal court and civil court. Obviously, domestic violence can be criminal when we have state pressing charges. And if, if that's happening, kind of what should, on the criminal end, should victims expect or should anyone expect in a typical domestic violence case on the criminal side? So first step is an order of protection. That's the civil side of mm -hmm. things where you can ask for a temporary restraining order and then be granted a permanent restraining order. And then in Davidson County, we're very, very fortunate. We have the Gene Crow Advocacy Center where victims of, and alleged victims of domestic violence are assigned someone to kind of walk them through the process. And they're kept in a separate part of the courthouse so they're not sitting right next to the person that may have beaten them or threatened them with a gun the night before. And that docket is separate from the other dockets in Davidson County. And I know some of the rural counties don't have the luxury of doing that. Um, those are the tough, tough cases. And um, I, I look to, I look up to my rural colleagues a lot because they have much more to manage. Linda, I really appreciate you saying that as always. But I, um, I'll say um, when I first started on the bench, we did not have an advocacy center. We, we have the Haven of Hope that operates in our jurisdiction. And you're absolutely right. It makes such a difference um, because as a judge, you're neutral and you can't step in to advocate for this person who um, has a uh, distinct power imbalance and can't feel um, heard and, and free in that courtroom. And so you've really, you've got to have someone else that can't be the judge to, to stand up for that person. And so uh, these advocacy centers are so important to having true access to justice. Okay, so what does a victim for the initial order of protection, which is going to be a civil docket, I don't know if it matters to them, but just so they understand the process. So we're getting this order of protection. What does a victim need to do? It for In Marshall County, they would go to the Haven of Hope and they help them fill out the form. It's mm -hmm. a pretty simple form, so you can do it yourself. I know in some jurisdictions they do that. Um, we, we try and get them um, support so that that advocate can tell them about other therapy resources and creating a safety plan while they're getting that uh, paperwork done. Also, it's possible that a police officer can file on a person's behalf. And I, I've, I've seen that happen before where a person uh, isn't sure they want an order of protection, but the police are sure because they've been out there a few times. <laughs> and so um, a police officer also can um, make that petition on their behalf. We start essentially usually with the person filling out or completing a petition on their own, not through an advocacy center. Oftentimes, you know, we don't have that level of intervention. They often are sitting in the same courtroom with the person, with the offender, and they usually just go and complete the petition for the order of protection on their own. When there are corresponding criminal charges, we try to link those cases so that they're heard almost at the same time to reduce the issues, the constitutional issues for the defendant, of course, and their self-incrimination issue, but also to reduce the time that the victim has to continue to come to court. So we try to link those up, but usually it starts with a petition on their own, and we try to expeditiously or quickly get those heard. And what is an order of protection supposed to do? It bars the alleged offender from coming within contact of the woman or man and or children if there's a fear. And there, is it time limited in order of protections for X amount of days or is it forever? Like, You get a temporary one that's mm -hmm. good until your first hearing and then you can file for a second one that's good for up to a year. And then the Tennessee legislature a few years ago actually passed a lifetime um, piece of legislation, uh, which I have not seen yet, but I know other judges have seen those. And, and I'll add to, Barlow, we're mentioning kind of the, the civil order of protection, but but quite often there's a, a corresponding criminal case. So an officer and a magistrate sworn out a warrant and, and there's been an arrest. And so sometimes you'll actually have the um, circumstance where you kind of have these dual proceedings, you know, one on the civil side, one on the criminal side. Uh, and, and also, even if there's not a civil order of protection that's sought, but there's just a pending criminal case, what we can do as, as judges is actually impose a criminal no contact kind of order for protection as a condition of that defendant's bail. So if even if there is not this separate uh, civil order of protection, 
we can also, or our judicial commissioner can actually say, you know, while this case is pending, this defendant cannot go anywhere near, you know, this person's house. If, if you, if you live together beforehand, you know, tough, you have to live somewhere else. If you need to get belongings, you have to get law enforcement to help you get them. But, but, but that can also be implemented as a condition of a defendant's bail as well. I find that most of my cases, the domestic cases, do not have an order of protection filed with them. So oftentimes we're on that civil, on the criminal track only, and and usually a no contact order is is issued in the midst of that. So the difference is for the no contact order and the criminal side of things that ultimately could be a violation of probation or a violation of the sentence and cause their criminal case to come back. Versus just if the person just sometimes just gets the order of protection without the corresponding criminal case, then usually that there's an arrest if there's a violation and that triggers a charge. And what happens if I have a no contact order or an order of protection and there is contact? You can actually be charged, uh, in addition to potentially violating your bail, you could actually be charged with a whole separate distinct offense of the violation of a no contact order. is actually a separate criminal statute, a criminal violation now. So in addition to an underlying domestic assault charge, you could then have an additional potential 11-month, 29-day sentence uh, on on top of a domestic conviction uh, for simply violating that no-contact order. Um, You know, even if if the, uh, uh, you know, a victim were to reach out to the defendant and the defendant responds, I mean, the defendant could be found in violation of that no-contact order because they are not to have any contact with that victim. So, so, uh, you know, we've been talking about on the victim side, but if, if you happen to be a defendant in this situation, a no contact order means a no contact order. It's a no contact order. I mean, zero contact. And we're talking about Facebook contact, Instagram contact, having somebody else go contact this victim. No contact means no contact. If there is, you're going to get arrested again. And so if you're a victim, then the answer is you need to be calling the police if there is contact. Yes. If they're posting in my Facebook comments or Instagram or whatever, then you're calling the police to say, and you're saying, I have a no contact order or an order of protection, and the police should take it from there. Yes. Correct. I think there are some people with the misconception that every disagreement is an order of protection. And I've had a few folks that um, maybe had a, uh, a live-in relationship that soured, and rather than go through an eviction, they're like, I can get a cheap eviction if I just go get an order of protection. <laughs> um, and, or, uh, you know, we had a fight and my girlfriend said some really ugly things to me and it, it hurt my feelings and I want an order of protection. And I, I want people to always feel like they can come to the courthouse and ask, but I, I do want people to understand it's a pretty high burden to say I'm an immediate risk of, of safety, uh, risk of harm here. So there are such situations exactly just to piggyback on that, that sometimes the temporary isn't issued. So sometimes that your order of protection, you have to actually just have the hearing on the actual order of protection. Sometimes you don't get the temporary order. So in, and especially in those cases where there doesn't appear to be an immediate risk of harm. If I'm the person requesting the order of protection, what do I need to do? Is it similar to what we've said earlier, where you need to bring photos and, and bring the Facebook comments and be ready to tell your story? Yes. Or it's not, you're just not going to show up to court and say, I want an order of protection and expect to get it. So what? how should you prepare if you're the one requesting it? Same concept, just basically what you said. I've had, I had one just last week. The lady actually had a camera in her house. And so she brought the video footage from the camera that she had in her house. She also had text message history. She had her social media information as well. And so she came and brought all of her information and she didn't have a lawyer, but she presented all of her information and ultimately was able to prove her case. And what if you have one and you don't want it anymore? That's that's a um, very common. It's it's very common. It's also, I mean, it's also... You know, we as judges get the benefit of, of getting to go to all these great trainings where we hear about the statistics and the research that is out there and how so often uh, folks end up changing their mind and deciding they don't want to prosecute. They go back to the abusers. And, and there's so much research out there that, that says that it only gets worse. And so it, 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 is, it is tough as a judge. Obviously, again, we're, we're the neutral. Ultimately, if the state decides they don't want to prosecute anymore, and oftentimes we have no choice but to potentially dismiss the case. But but it also is possible that the state still might decide to prosecute a defendant if there's other evidence and, and 
uh, you know, and, and other witnesses they can call or even the, the victim themselves. You know, it it might not be up to the victim is my point. I mean, the state's going to ultimately decide that the state of Tennessee, the prosecution, if they want to continue to prosecute this defendant, regardless of, of, of what the victim might 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 uh, say. But what I would encourage is all these great advocacy centers out there. I mean, these are the professionals, um, you know, the partnership in, in Chattanooga and Family Justice Center. I mean, I, I would just implore anybody that's been a victim of domestic assault to, to seek help and, and to talk to the professionals that can help educate them about this cycle and about their options. Uh, and, and so many times folks feel like they have no other choice but to go back to the abuser. And, and, and you know, again, I just, you know, because we can't really do that in, in court, but I just would certainly hope to advocate for folks getting the, the necessary information that can help them make the best decision for themselves. And that's usually on the criminal side in terms of when the state's involved, but I see it on the, the just the civil side with the strictly the order protection docket. It's the order protection. And I had one recently where the hearing lasted us like four hours and ultimately the order protection was granted. And then within a month, the person seeking the order protection came in and filed a motion to dismiss the order protection. And you know, in I always ask why. I always ask. They have to present their motion and ultimately show why that order protection should be dismissed, especially in that one where we had a four-hour hearing and where you presented how horrible this person was. Now, why all of a sudden there's this change of heart? And so usually that person can file a motion to have the order, order protection dismissed. And usually we'll have to go and prove to the judge on why, prove us why they need that order dismissed. When that happens, almost always, the parties will apologize to me. They'll say, I'm so sorry I wasted your time. Mm -hmm. And I stop them. I, I try to say things may change if they do. Uh, I'll tell you statistically that people in a domestic violent relationship will leave seven times on average. So if you find yourself in this position again know that i am not mad at you and this courthouse is always open to you uh, you did not waste my time this is my job and i'm glad and honored to do it and so i think it's important for us as judges to to recognize that it may have just been a, a blip in their relationship and maybe they are going to go on and have no other hiccups but um to leave that door open to them and and inform them statistically people don't leave a domestically violent relationship one time they don't and so uh, and to give them the resources say if you need help this is who you reach out to this courthouse is always open to you so that's the way I hope to handle it mm -hmm. that's a really good point um, anybody have any last advice for any general sessions I don't know about advice but the one area we didn't touch on were the mental health committal hearings so we hear <laughs> involuntary commitments and um, those are interesting cases and uh, we do have a growing mentally ill population post-COVID. Um, there are a lot of people out there with who are isolated, no family members. And um, so life's been a little bit hard for some people. So um, just know that the courts are there. They care. They try to help people when they can. They do hold people accountable when necessary. And we're here to serve people. So, um, you know, utilize us. Come in. Don't be afraid of the judge. Just tell the judge your story. So how does the how do men mental commitment hearings start? Usually if someone has threatened suicide or homicide, a family member will get frightened and call the police. Then there is a committal process that starts where two doctors certify. And then in our jurisdiction in Davidson County, we have night court commissioners who issue the preliminary orders. But every person who's involuntarily committed has a right to a hearing within 72 hours. And they can say, um, yes, I want to work with the doctors and get medicated and stable and then try to find a place to live in two weeks. Or they'll come and have a hearing and say, no, I, I'm really not mentally ill. I want to be let out. I just blew up for no reason. And um, so we have those hearings regularly every week. And, and then we then step in and decide, you know, is this person a danger to themselves or others? And is, is this hospital the least restrictive place they could be treated right now? And if we say yes to those uh, two things, then then I can order that person to remain in the hospital for up to 15 days. So it, it's a extraordinary power. But but again, it, it's it's important that that the that everybody in our state have uh, the opportunities uh, to have you know make sure their constitutional rights are not being violated and have the opportunity for a hearing. And also in those situations, we often uh, most of the time I, I appoint them an attorney as well. So again, just. Um, you know, the great thing about, I think, is, as you've probably learned from listening to us, to, uh, us today, if, 
you want to go into general sessions practice, you it's a good place if you you love the Wild West, you love not necessarily knowing what what your day is going to uh, going to look like. But what we do is very very important, uh, and and a lot of folks and in, in, in their uh, important constitutional rights at, at 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 risk. And so we understand how important our job is, and I think all of us um, go into every single day uh, knowing that the person we interact with, even if we have a hundred other people behind them, this is the most important day of their life, potentially. And so we need to make sure that we are treating them with the respect and giving them, uh, you know, the resources and, and their day in court that they deserve. I think the only other thing I want to just add to that is just to clarify a little bit on the sentencing. While 11 months and 29 days is the ceiling of an offense, it's just of that offense. So if you're charged with domestic assault, simple possession, and drug paraphernalia, don't think that your maximum exposure is 11 months and 29 days. It is on each of those offenses. So knowing that even for sessions is life-changing. It's not just I could change your life for 11 months and 29 days. I could change your life for three 11 months and 29 day sentences. So I think that's the other part is realizing that while each offense is a misdemeanor, they all have their own individual um, issues that could come with it as well. And I think that what was, I think, said earlier from my esteemed colleague from Marshall County here, you know, we realize that oftentimes this is everybody's first time entering the justice system or dealing with it. And I know I take that very serious. And you know, with compassionate justice. So for me, I know that we make a big difference on how they see the court. And, and so I look at each case in that, in that way. And I definitely encourage new lawyers to come to general sessions. That is definitely where sometimes it feels like baptism by fire, but you get the best experience in sessions that will guide you throughout your your legal career. And, and I'll add, in addition to lawyers, I actually let high schoolers come sit up on the bench with me. So if you're listening to this and you have, uh, you know, somebody that's in you know, 11th, 12th grade or college or in law school, and, and they kind of want to see that court side from that system, reach out to your local general sessions judge and see if, is there any way they could shadow you uh, for a day to kind of see that, that side of it? Because I, right. I, I love having. I offer summer internships. Last summer I had nine interns, all high school students. And, you know, I want as many people to go. I think the law is a wonderful, noble career. And so I want to encourage as many young people as I can to pursue it because it is just a great way to serve people. I agree. I think it's wonderful the opportunities you'll have. I'm going to consider implementing some of those, but I have a teen court um, and uh, some just like a drug court is often called recovery court. That's the same thing. Teen court is also often called youth court. So if you have one of those in your area, it is a great experience. Even if you're not interested in being a lawyer or in law enforcement, it is a great experience to be a better citizen. And all of it, so all Tennessee courts are open. They are open to the public. Um, General Sessions courts, they are county level courts. So there are 95 counties. There are 95 General Sessions court systems, sometimes more than one in a county, but every county has a General Sessions court. So your county does. And let's not, you are all elected. So you might initially be appointed um, by a county mayor or county commission, but then you are on the ballot. So you are elected. You can vote for your county or not vote for your county general sessions attorneys. You'll see their signs out. We just did that in August of 2022. You saw a lot of campaign signs for general sessions judges, um, and you'll see that again um, in the coming year. So that is obviously another way that citizens can get involved. Thank you so much for having us. You're welcome. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for Thank joining you. us for this edition of Tennessee Court Talk.